Warning, the following podcast contains graphic violence, coarse language, adult themes, and nudity, and other content that some listeners may find triggering. Trigger me one, trigger me two, trigger me what you'd like to do. Trigger me three, trigger me four, trigger me five, I'll torture you now. Trigger me timber. Trigger me timbers, yeah. Trigger me timbers. Trigger me timbers. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Trigger Me Timbers podcast, the show that brings you the latest in shocking, startling, and otherwise triggering news. As always, I'm joined by my good friend Phil. Phil, how are you today? I'm feeling excellent after that rendition. Uh, that was a 10 out of 10 on the beautiful scale. The beauty, the beauty scale. It was great. And this week we are joined by an incredibly special guest. The sultry tones you just heard belong to our good friend Ben. Ben, how are you? Hello, friends. I'm excellent. Thank you very much. How are you? So good, so good. Um, my heart is just so warm after hearing that. Um, I've been waiting for this uh, moment for a long time, since I've I've been you know listening since the early days. So it's a pleasure to be here with you both. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure to have you. Um, and before we kick it off, I'll, I'll just say, I'd like to say on the podcast, um, when like one of the main bits of feedback that I've had from from listeners is that they absolutely love the theme song, catchy, catchy, beautiful tune, um, and it's a lot of people's favorite part of the podcast. Which might say it's something about <laughs> Phil and I, but <laughs> well, that's but, uh, that's beautiful feedback. Thank you very much. Yeah. But no, it's, um, it was fun to write and yeah. uh, fun to play just then. Brought back some great memories. <laughs> Is it true that yeah. you made the whole song hungover? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I do my best work hungover. And uh, I've always wanted to be in the jingle business, you know. Just wanted to be Charlie <laughs> Sheen, so yeah, nice. it's a good, uh, good you know, bit of experience under my belt. <laughs> well, uh, tell us a bit more about yourself, Benjamin. Oh, yes. So me... Um, well, I'm 28. Um, 28 I like to play male. music. Yep. 28 year old male. Um, I work as a business analyst for the Department of Human Services, formerly known as, now they're known as Services Australia. Mm. Um, and yeah, I like to drink beers and uh, get lit. But you know, that hasn't been happening much this year. So uh, I've been doing a lot of music, which has been great. Um, apart from that, my interests are, you know, keeping fit. Mm, you're a runner. You love running, hey? Love running, yep. Uh, love getting into the great outdoors. Uh, so I love Canberra for that. But um, yeah, what else do you want to know? <laughs> Nothing, no, that's plenty. That sounds good. Yep, hard working man, hard traveling man, hard musician man, just hard man all around. Working for the man. Working yeah. for the bloody man, yeah. Till dawn, till dusk. And that's a, a, a perfect segue into my article, um, Ooh, if you fantastic. guys are ready to get triggered. Let's get into it. Let's try and trigger me. All right. Ooh. Yes. It, it appears that Benjamin is actually quite hard to trigger, so we'll see how we do today. Mm. We'll try and get a 10 out of him, as always. All right. So without further ado, let's get into the first article. So I've gone, I've gone for a personal angle here today uh, towards our guest. So, um, as Ben mentioned, he's a musician, as you can tell from the introduction. Um, and uh, Ben, you've recently been in Canada, uh, traveling as a bit of a traveling musician, playing gigs, at various places, busking. Is that is that correct? Yep. Yep. 
Well, I think you might you might enjoy this article. So. All right. Trigger me, mate. <laughs> See what you got. All right. So this comes from uh, WA. The headline is, Albany buskers launch petition to fight busking ban. Nice. I like it already. So there's a group of buskers uh, from Albany in Western Australia uh, who have started a petition uh, towards the City of Albany Council because they've been banned from performing at a popular shopping centre. <laughs> so busking was recently banned at the North Road Shopping Centre following complaints from shop owners. Uh, and the busking group claimed they had been banned from several key spots in the region. Um, the City of Albany local council told the ABC that it supported busking as long as it complied with the law and did not cause a nuisance to businesses and residents. However, they said that they have no jurisdiction over restrictions that may be imposed on private property by the landowner. Mm. The, um, there's a quote here from Community Services Acting Executive Director Nathan Watson, who said that we'd encourage buskers and street performers to consult surrounding businesses or the landowner and seek their approval before performing in a public place. You know, so you, know, you, might, you might think that's reasonable. Um, the article then, then throws to a quote from the owner of this particular aforementioned uh, you know, shopping center. So this guy, Russell Poliulka, he says that um, he has a responsibility to the traders who pay the rent. And the quote is, they've got no right to busk in a private shopping center. It's a privilege which they had for a while, which we have withdrawn. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Poliqua said that he would review the ban if the busking could be done in a way that didn't get complaints. If they want to have a trial for a couple of weekends with no loudspeakers, no screaming, and the music is of quality, and not just people who want to exhibit their lack of talent, <laughs> then I'd be happy to give that a go. Yeah. He said. Yeah. It's a non-talent non ban, I understand. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I'd be very curious to know, you guys, what are, you, what are your thoughts on busking and street performers in general? I know, Ben, you'll have a very personal um, affiliation here. And, and what do you guys think about, do you think private companies, like in this case a shopping mall owner, should have the right to be able to ban busking and musical mm. performances in an in a arguably public place? What do you yeah. think? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, great article, Hubert. Uh, I can see what you're trying to do here by triggering me. Um, in my opinion, I mean, busking's a really tricky one because it's, uh, I mean, they're completely legitimate in saying if it's private property, they're not welcome. Um, like Australia has some pretty interesting laws around that kind of stuff. There's a little bit of, you know, gray area around busking, which is one of the reasons why I haven't really done it that much in Australia. Um, and yeah, usually when I've kind of experienced shopping centers, it is a little bit like give and take. Um, I've always known that you can't actually be under an awning because that's where the private property starts. So if you're outside mm -hmm. of the awning, then it's public property and it's like it's free game. But, um, but yeah. so it doesn't matter where you're standing or it doesn't matter where your voice is traveling? It does. Well, and that also brings up like amplification because uh, technology has come a long, a long way in the past like 20 years when it comes to like battery powered ampli amplifiers. And you can get a pretty loud sound out of like eight AA batteries. So I can definitely imagine like shopkeepers, if there was someone like screaming into the mic and playing rubbish, um, you get, you'd get pretty annoying and it might scare off customers. So yeah, I can, I can definitely understand like where some people would come from in that, that side of the argument. But at the same time, like I think busking has the potential to be like great for the fabric of society. Um, and 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah, how could you? How the hell would you put in like quality rules on music? You know, mm. on the roads you can be like, look, we ought to be quality drivers. Eighty k's an hour. Yeah. Um, six to the left. Yeah. <laughs> stop at these stop signs. But how do you do that to a musician? Be like, well, you got to hit the note, or you're not bloody playing here. <laughs> it's it's tricky, Phil, because uh, some councils actually have busking licenses. So, and in that case, you have to like apply for a permit and even okay, that um, makes sense. Weed out a, the bill. Yeah, you have to do an audition. So, I know Melbourne, Sydney, some of the major cities have that. Yeah, in Perth, um, I was reading, uh, you know, the neighboring city in WA um, has that requirement. You, you have to apply for a license and you have to send your yeah. audition via video. Yeah. Uh, and then, so the license doesn't cost any money, but there's someone at the local council who is the Simon Cowell to decide yeah. whether you're, you're good enough. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I'm fully supportive of that because, you know, where I was in Montreal, it was free game to busk anywhere in the metro system at a certain spot where there was like a, a, a harp sign, um, which was really good because anyone could do it. But at the same time, you know, you had a lot of people who were just kind of screaming into a microphone and annoying a lot of people or playing a saxophone or a trumpet really loud. And, you know, in the morning, I don't think people enjoy that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there is definitely, there should be some quality control, but, you know, it's up to the local jurisdiction to come up with that. So why does this need to be regulated? Why can't the free market just stop giving these people money and then they stop busking? <laughs> well, that's the thing. It doesn't I mean, work. They just want attention, maybe. They, they might just attention. want attention. Um, they might just be doing it because they've got nothing else to do. Um, they might be just practicing, practicing their performances. That's um, right. Trying yeah. to get some exposure for a new album, perhaps. That's right, yeah. And that's, you know... One of the main reasons why busking is so great, it's because it is just a bit of practice and getting paid for it. So, yeah. well, that's all right. That's that's very interesting. I um, yeah. So it, it sounds like uh, Ben, you, you've got a lot more of a balanced uh, perspective than than me even. I think on this one because okay. I I was I was quite triggered by this for a few reasons. Um, you're obviously more informed than me on this, and so my opinion isn't isn't uh, <laughs> isn't as valid, but. Um, my, my initial reaction anyway was that um, I guess like I, I thought about this in a more broad sense about the the sharing of public space. Mm. So it's something that I find quite triggering the fact that um, shared communal spaces in general in society are diminishing, I think, over time and are becoming increasingly controlled by private companies um, and in some instances, instances governments. Um, so some other examples that I thought of related to this are like, you know, the fact that there are less green spaces in cities um, than there used to be, pedestrian only areas are becoming more limited and there's more pressure on developers to kind of open up their you know, malls to, to traffic, etc. Mm. Um, I put this in the same category almost as like, you know, bans on graffiti, um, which I think is, you know, when done well is a, is a very um, valid and interesting art form. Um, it also kind of reminded me of the idea of hostile uh, architecture, mm. which is where like um, councils and, and private companies oh, yeah. will um, they'll do things like they'll design their park benches so that homeless people can't sleep on them, so they're really uncomfortable. Yeah. And you know, um, or like another example is they'll put um, metal uh, kind of barriers on handrails uh, so that skateboarders can't mm. you know do sick grinds yeah. off them. Yeah. Yeah, I know it ruins Phil's um, 50-50 grinds <laughs> on the way to work every day. But um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I think like that was my, my initial thought was like, oh, is this like another example of that where it's like a private company's like imposing their their dominance over a, a formerly public space. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, and I think like um, I think you nailed it though, Ben. That like there's it's there's obviously a balance. Like you don't you don't want you don't want it to just be complete free for all. Where you have any mm. anybody um, yeah uh, doing any kind of wild performance. Um, but on the flip side, this is like a blanket ban, and that's why I like yeah. That's why I was like that's 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 going too far. Yeah. Um, because yeah, obviously like busking can be add, add a lot to the to the environment mm. um, and. Uh, when done well can be incredible like in you know places like New Orleans for example are just like mm. famous for it um, there are a number of uh, amazing artists that started as street performers like guys like John Butler and mm. um, Ed Sheeran Ed Sheeran there you go Tones yeah, and I dare I say yeah um, yeah so anyway that was my that was my initial thinking I think you've convinced me though that it's like that there is a middle ground there though um, yeah I mean one thing that does trigger me is the whole uh argument around noise pollution and it's not just busking but i guess also um how do you define what pollution is when it comes to noise and um you know what really triggers me is the whole idea that um we need to limit and crack down on noise for residential spaces and especially as more and more areas become gentrified and you know um people move in to live in more um uh, business areas then that kind of limits the amount of noise that people can make, even in legitimate businesses like music venues and stuff. Because mm. a lot of music venues in Canberra and Sydney, obviously, have had to shut down because they put up a bunch of apartments and then the apartment people are like, oh, it's too loud. Can you, you know, there's been a pub here for 100 years playing music, but can you just, uh, you know, tone it down on a Friday and Saturday night so that I can sleep? And it's like, that shouldn't come first. It should be, you know, social fabric and arts and culture. If people are prepared to live in a you know high density area, they're expecting that. So Amen. that's that's how I get triggered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah can't they get uh, bloody double glazing and just block the noise out? Exactly. Yeah, it should be up to the uh, the construction the... and people to understand mm. that that's a, a risk moving into a you know a cultural center. <laughs> so yeah, you put the eggshells on the wall that blocks out the noise. Mm. Eggshells are. <laughs> You throw them at the window. Not the eggshells. Egg, egg cartons. <laughs> Just kidding. Egg cartons. Yeah, like nice that's cans. it. I've seen those around. Yes. Yeah, bit of noise proofing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and obviously, like, if people are making beautiful music mm. rather than kids screaming and or V8 <laughs> engines roaring, yeah. isn't that a bit better? That's a that's an okay. That's an acceptable well, noise, right? Some people might consider the sound of a V8 engine musical. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. What about birds chirping? Is that a, a noise pollution? Do we have to put the birds down? For it depends singing? how hungover I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah fair. Anyway, I think there's different kinds of noise pollution. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of the problem probably is that it's subjective because totally and know, it's art really yeah that's the issue with art that's right that's right but I, I, the, the thought occurred to me that like you know um if, if i'm some like you know real innovative kind of um you know controversial hip-hop artist that mm. like you know has highly political raps or something am i going to get the tick of approval from a um old codger at the local council who's looking at my yeah. audition tape probably yeah. not um so that, that yeah, there could be some you know, a bit of like uh, yeah, a bit of a trend where only the most vanilla kind of mainstream mm. artists get the tick of approval, and that that's that triggers me as well. There's no space for kind of the more interesting, yeah, experimental type music. That's it. But yeah. th- but again, there's a balancing act. You don't want someone, you know, screaming uh, Satanist death metal at seven in the morning at I two think. million decibels. Um, mm. <laughs> I would like and I guess that. that's the thing, like we want the people who are running these panels that are auditioning people to be, you know, well versed in the arts, all genres of music and um, yeah, 
it shouldn't just be one person, you know, saying what quality music is. Yeah. And if I could just say one more thing about, uh, you raised like how busking can be great for the community. One of the things that I really learned about busking when I was playing in Montreal was that um, it's often the first experience that a lot of babies have when it comes to seeing a performance, oh, like wow. in live. I hadn't thought about that until my housemate, who was a, uh, a long, <clears throat> long-term busker, he was about 68, He'd been a troubadour traveling all through North and South America busking on the streets. And he said that's his favorite part is when you can tell that it's like the first time a child has seen live music in the flesh and their eyes just light up. And that was always what gave me the kick and made me kind of want to do it every day. Oh, so, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, yeah pretty, it's a pretty special art form. And, you know, I'm yeah, pretty I passionate about making sure it continues and yeah. doesn't get shut down. So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand why businesses wouldn't be like the mall owner wouldn't be pushing for it because it's free for him. Yeah, yeah, it's just that quality uh, thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. the public pay for it, but I mean, he doesn't have to pay anything to get some free uh, performances, mm. and you'd you'd encourage it, surely. Yeah, and maybe we could look at the root of the was it Albury? Uh, Albany. Albany. Maybe Albany just needs some better music teachers or some <laughs> some better community programs to develop those musicians into. Uh, Better performers, possibly. Yeah. So, could be the root of the issue. Maybe this is the real reason why Clive Palmer is suing the WA government because of their ban on busking. Have you heard Maybe. of that? <laughs> He's trying to sue them for $20 billion. WA's yeah. going down. Yeah. Anyway, that's irrelevant. Um, what do you reckon? Trick to rate it? Hit me up. What do you think? Yeah, look, I'm triggered because the, uh, the shop owner, as I said at the end, is just stupid for denying the buskers and uh, the vetting process you know it's never going to be good enough mm. <laughs> they're going to be vetting out people that other some people are going to be interested in you know wide variety of tastes in music um, so yes I'll give it a solid uh, 7 for not supporting the arts nice nice very good what do you reckon Ben? well Hubert um, I think initially I was uh, you know sitting around about a 5-6 but having thought about it and you know taking me back to my memories of busking it's up to, to maybe a seven and a half um i think you've definitely chosen a very very relevant article so well done and uh yeah i definitely don't agree with the uh the ban yeah. um i think busking should be a part of society it just needs to be regulated appropriately um so that everyone has an opportunity but there's also quality you know <laughs> yeah yeah no excellent excellent um yeah and i, I think the um yeah i lo- loved your uh, loved your story about the um yeah, being often a child's first experience with music, and I'm assuming closely followed by the Wiggles as their second experience of music, um, which is just also also great. Huge fan of the Wiggles, but um, <laughs> yeah, but no, I think um, I probably came, I'm probably opposite of you, Ben. I probably came in more fired up, and then uh, have been um, slightly uh, cooled off from your very mm-hmm. sensible, level-headed uh, explanations. So. Um, but I, I'm still still triggered. Um, I, I want to hear some some sweet sultry tones of Ben uh, in you know in in the middle of Canberra um, mm. when I'm hanging out with my friends. So I, I'll I'll still give it an eight. I think uh, in support nice in support of the buskers. Mm. Very good. Yeah. Nice. I'll torture you, my friend. Trig me timbers. Trig me timbers. Yeah. Trig me timbers. Trig me timbers. Well, Hubert, well, Phil, I've chosen an article uh, which I actually found through um, something called The Hustle, which sends me tech news every day. Usually I don't read it, but this um, kind of piqued my interest 
and piqued my interest because of my dad. He used to edit newspapers and edit speeches and stuff. Um, so I'll, I'll explain what the article is and then I'll kind of tell you why I chose it. So the article is from theringer.com, which is an American, um, I wouldn't call it a news site, but it's, it's a bit of sport, a bit of culture. Um, and this is a media article. Um, the article is called One Twitter Account's Quest to Proofread the New York Times. And I'll give you kind of the first couple paragraphs because it's, it's written quite well. In 2017, the Times dissolved its copy desk, possibly permitting more typos to slip through. Meet the anonymous lawyer who's correcting the paper of record one an untactful tweet at a time. October 18, 2019. A New York Times standards editor emailed seven other Times editors to alert them to the existence of a new Twitter account that they would soon grow to respect and at times resent. According to the characterization of one of the editors on the email, the message advised its recipients that there was a lawyer on Twitter aggressively pointing out typos and that we should, <laughs> and that we should consider following him. A little more than a month after the Twitter account's creation on September 16, the New York Times had taken note of, uh, this is the Twitter account, at Nitty Typos, it's a nice name, or Typos of the New York Times. Anyone who followed Nitty Typos that day soon got a real feel for the flavor of its tweets. On October 19, Nitty Typos spotted a happened instead of a happen in a story about Brexit, a missing space, and a picture of three people captioned with five names in a story about TikTok clubs. A missing comma and a statue in place of a statute. In a story about President Donald Trump's attempt to host the G7 summit at his own Doral Resort, a subject verb, agreement, a subject verb agreement error in a story about Venezuela's water quality, a misplaced comma in a story about Bernie Sanders accepting an, endor an endorsement from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC for short, and a missing space between quotation marks and a quote in a story about Turkey's president, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Although the account linked to a nice, probably typo-free story in the love section, it also found time to editorialize about the supposedly sorry state of the times. And I quote, this is what he's, he wrote on Twitter. It's kind of a shame that virtually each and every piece of content the Times produces, even the pretty great ones, like this, has a typo in it. Needy Typos tweeted about an opinion piece that contained a wayward word. On the same day, a story about a German YouTuber that contained a duplicated phrase prompted the observation, and I quote, at times, I really have a hard time believing that this paper is edited at all. Between typos, Nitty Typos is engaged in a debate about the proper way to form plurals. For example, MVP with an apostrophe S or MVP, no apostrophe S, in support of the position that apostrophes don't pluralize, exclamation mark. And then the article continues and continues. It goes into Grab some detail <laughs> about some, some pretty intense um, typos and some pretty, you know, wow. things that... I wouldn't have picked up myself. This um, guy hates typos. This guy really hates typos. So basically, he's a lawyer. Um, he's pretty high up, and he has a lot of stuff that goes in front of the Supreme Court. But, you know, just on his mornings or his weekends off, he just loves finding typos and tweeting about them. So I guess my article, it's a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, which I like. Um, 
I guess but the question is raised, do we find that the more that we produce media, and especially online media, that the quality, um, is it acceptable that the quality goes down? And how does that kind of tie into what the English language means to us um, as, you know, what we believe as, you know, the future of the English language? Should we be obeying the hardcore grammaticals and the typos that we've been learning for all our lives or should we kind of accept the I guess standardization of the um, the casualization of the English language discuss <laughs> yes I'm a big fan of casualization <laughs> oh, I don't believe it Phil no I'm a big... <laughs> are you calling me unprofessional uh, and yeah I'm not a yeah screw typos who cares about typos and grammar I'm triggered by this guy being so angry yeah he's just over the top you think he's angry or you think he's just kind of reacting and to something that's there? He's got a little hobby. He just, yeah, yeah. just got a little hobby to pursue and just shred on. You know, everyone loves punching on. Shred on our New York Times. It's Everyone's got to have an interest, a hobby. I think you've said that to me mm. a few times. It's true. It's yeah. true. Well, good on him. He's found a little hobby, but also it's but it triggers grammar. <laughs> it triggers me that he's, <laughs> that he takes yeah. it so seriously and he thinks the world is falling apart because of the time. I think yeah. it's bad at the media is uh, like, bad with fact-checking and stuff like that or something. Mm. Um, but Phil, you're also a developer. Uh, you write code for a living and that has to be you know, perfect in terms of the syntax. Mm, but so why should the written word be any different? The machine has to interpret it. <laughs> the compiler <laughs> has to interpret your code. It'll throw right. you a syntax error and you can easily just go and fix it. Yeah. That's uh, what's called compiler bashing. I do it. Yeah. Whereas I don't at all proofread my code, like the syntax of my code. Obviously. Yeah. Like I have typos everywhere. And as I go through, I just go, yeah, whatever, run. Let's see what happens. And then mm. we'll go, error. What the hell is this? And I'll go, oh, whoops. I wrote, I misspelled this word. Mm. Fix that, an error. And then I go, whoops. And I keep clicking run and then addressing the errors. Run, address the errors. Rather than proofreading, I yeah. go backwards and I let the, like, let the spell check <laughs> fix for me. You know? Sure, sure. Isn't that quicker, more efficient way of doing things? Yeah, but sometimes spell check doesn't pick up everything. Otherwise, yeah. the times would be perfect. Well, with, with software, it's different because uh, it'll just not work. You'll either get mm. a syntax error or later on a logical error mm -hmm. where you don't get the output you desire. Yep. Anyway, point is, yeah, grammar and stuff. You know, it's the last thing we've got to worry about. We've got to worry about good content. And uh, at the moment, uh, um, not, not proofread grammar, but fact-checked mm. proofread. Um, yeah, I agree. yeah, I agree. But it's interesting because you're a man of, you know, maths and data. And I see words as similar, you know, it's, it should be, should be as accurate as it could be. As long as the person interprets it, just like the program, yeah. I guess, as long as the compiler interprets it properly. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. I mean, yeah, does anyone really make a mistake? There's like a space missing. We could probably put all our words together and no spaces would be all good. <laughs> I wouldn't want to read that personally, but. <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm going to completely disagree with Phil on this one. Oh, grammar nerds. Yeah. So this, this lawyer is one of my people. Yeah. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a big had, you, had you heard about this man previously? Or? I hadn't. I hadn't. Okay. Um, might have to follow him. Um, yeah. But the so my my um, just for background, like my day to day job involves a lot of writing, um, mm. and so big part of that is uh, you know the editing process with writing, um, checking for typos, uh, ensuring that my writing is concise and, and clear and accurate. Um, and so one side effect of this is that whenever I read anything else, uh, when I'm outside of work, I'm hyper aware of typos. Um, mm. And something that I've noticed is 
I, you know, I obviously clearly love reading news articles as well. And I, I have noticed a decline in the quality of the writing mm. um, in, in journal articles, sorry, um, media articles uh, over the recent years. Um, and it triggers me. Like I, so I think the... Um, Grounded ass. <laughs> <laughs> you guys trick 10 out of 10 from YouTube. <laughs> well, there's a few reasons. There's a few reasons. So I think the um, one... One cause, like, firstly, I just find it jarring when I'm reading a sentence and I just see a word that's incorrect or whatever. It just, it just annoys me because it's, it's just, you know, it's out of place. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's untidy. Um, but I think the, for me, it's, I'm more triggered by what the actual, um, what the, the typos actually reflect. And so I think it reflects a few things. One is that um, the editing process for um, newspapers has been um, outsourced and decentralized uh, in recent times. So a lot of local newspapers, for example, like um, from my hometown, the Illawarra Mercury, uh, the Canberra Times, etc., all of those, uh, many of those uh, newspapers have basically, um, previously would have had their own teams of journalists, um, including editors, etc., and now have been absolutely stripped back to the bare bones where um, there's just a, a, a absolute, there's a lack of diversity now in media because um, a lot of these pages basically just rely on, you know, the big kind of Sydney Morning Herald, for example, and then all of the articles are, are kind of um, shared from that one, one source. Um, and the, the local stories, um, yes, like I've, I've, heard, I've heard through connections in the journalism industry that the uh, the local editing teams have basically been stripped back to nothing and all of the articles actually get sent overseas uh, to be edited, um, you know, in a very cheap, uh, Mm. cheap manner. Yeah. And so I think that that triggers me because, yeah, just all of those things just reflect a general kind of, yeah, decline in the quality of journalism in general, which I think is a big problem for society. Yeah. Um, so the actual, I mean, maybe the actual typos themselves don't, don't trigger me in the extreme, but um, more, more kind of that, yeah, general trend. Um, and I, but, but I also think that like, uh, you know, I think like the casualization of language is, is okay. Like I think, you, you know, we can invent new words, we can have acronyms, abbreviations, etc. But I think the, um, yeah, when it comes to like just errors in writing, um, I think that is a problem because I think it, uh, you know, it's important that language remains clear uh, and um, and accessible. And I, I think like, yeah, you know, tr- traditional kind of standards of language are important because it allows complex ideas to be discussed in Mm-hmm. easily understood ways and i think like you know you have to draw the line at some point what do you accept in terms of like mm-hmm. how casual you go um how many typos you accept etc but i think it's important to kind of strive for the strive to be accurate and concise and precise with your language um yeah to allow the discussion to be interesting and complex mm-hmm. ideas that's so it. that's that's my rant um, <laughs> yeah. i agree with good, having good vocabulary i guess i don't have a very good one but if you have a good vocabulary, you can express complex ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, having the names for everything uh, is handy. Something I don't do. <laughs> but the grammar and the syntax, who cares about that stuff? And the, whether there's a comma or a space, it's just for readability. If someone yeah. actually reads it, it might just take them a quarter of a millisecond longer to read it because there's no space there. 
Yeah. That's the big deal. I guess, Phil, my counter-argument to you would be, and I know you're a big fan of the slippery slope, <laughs> would be how much would the casualization of the, the media and the way in which kind of social media is kind of getting ingrained in the lexicon of, you know, life and how people's opinions are formed, especially when it comes to politics, how much is that, you know, possibly a slippery slope to allowing, um, you know, un, uh, unchecked articles to come through and, you know, inhibit people's opinions? Yeah, I guess it can get to a point where it would be bad. As long as points are getting across, I think my pet peeve at the moment with language, lately, uh, especially my partner, has been saying a lot of, you know what I mean, before without really saying anything at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. for example, uh, when I walked, you know what I mean, and I'm like, wait, you didn't even get through the sentence. So you got said like two words into the sentence, and then said, you know what I mean. Yeah. I think a lot of people do that, and you're like, hey, yeah. Man, how about say a couple of sentences first? And then say, do you know what I mean? Because I don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So people are cutting short their sentences, but that's not a that's not a grammar thing. Yeah. That's just. A, I, I love concise. I love concise language, and I love the Australian lexicon in that we're so lazy that you know we shorten everything. I think that's fantastic, <laughs> and it's you know yes. maybe it's becoming a little bit too prominent because we do have like the Twitterization of. Um, form in that like everyone's trying to stick to you know max 120 characters in a statement but that's because it helps people to think and go over their thing and make it concise it does, yeah. rather than it saves time it yeah. saves money and they get the message across better it's better for everyone yeah and i don't know if you've tried to read shakespeare lately but that makes no sense <laughs> it never made sense to me i hate that shit <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you Phil. i think the key point is is clarity. I think mm. clari- the clar- actually getting the message across that you're trying to it's convey is the most important thing. Yeah, definitely. But I think typos go are counter to that. I think you know abbreviations, you know, using dot points, using short tweets, etc. That can all be that can all be used well and effectively. But I think using incorrect punctuation, the wrong spelling, etc. Actually, it just muddles the message. It makes it harder to understand. Mm. I disagree. I think it just makes uh, you you're less trustworthy as a writer or whatever because you're like, oh, look, you haven't even proofread. You've just mashed this stuff out from your laptop in your underwear. You know, it, it gives you less credibility and the reader gives you, gives you less trust. That's the only problem. Mm. The credibility uh, comes with good grammar and proper spell checking, I guess. But it's the New York Times. They got the credibility they can get. <laughs> don't, don't you think it reflects just like a, a carelessness or a laziness in general with the writing? Like, if, I, I would want my, I would want my my journalists uh, carefully thinking about their words and, and constructing their sentences in a way to make sure that the the meaning is coming across as intended. And if they can't even be bothered to see whether the comma is in the right place or you know they've used the right there um, in the sentence or they'd put an apostrophe after a, an acronym, um, then they, they haven't actually put the thought and care into thinking about their language, which I think is terrible. Wrong. In reality, <laughs> in reality, these people have an hour to pump out an article or maybe two and a half hours, whatever it is. Uh, small articles, maybe big ones, they probably get all day, whatever. And why would you want them to spend more time dealing with the punctuation than dealing with research and getting and doing some fact-checking and adding some more facts in that? that they mm. can then factor whatever they can add more in rather than spending all their time doing the syntax yeah i agree it's a balancing act but at the end of the day it's what you know people are consuming is the most important thing and if if a typo has the possibility of getting a fact incorrect or yeah. misleading someone 
that's where I think the line needs to be drawn. Yeah. Agreed. Should we do our ratings? Let's do it. Uh, do I ask you? <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll start with uh, yourself, Hubert. Yeah, sure. Hubert, one to ten, trigger trigometer for the nitty typos. Yeah. Well, I think. Um, I, yeah, I'm. I think I think Phil and I might both be triggered, but for different reasons. So I'm <laughs> I'm triggered just because of the the fact that there are so many typos, and this guy can create mm. a dedicated account pointing <laughs> out typos in this like world renowned newspaper. Mm. If the New York Times can't even get their you know their editing right, then what hope does any other local newspaper have? Um, yeah, and like I said, I just think it, it reflects a, a, a laziness and a carelessness in general, and a decline in journalistic quality. Um, which I think is bad for society as a whole. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite triggered by that. So I'd, I'd give it a solid eight and a half, I'd say. Nice. Thank you. As someone who refuses to grammar, and now I've took, it's taken me 20 minutes to realize I'm personally targeted in this article. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just triggered that people take it so seriously. I would prefer people to take their time writing the words or saying the words than, than fixing the words and doing the punctuation. That's what I'd rather than on the content than on the than on the nice prettiness. So how triggered are you? I was thinking about a ten, but I can't give a ten. I'll, I'll just say, go on. Okay, it's not overly important to me, but it's still very annoying that people take this stuff so seriously. So I'll give it another seven. Okay. How about Thank yourself, you. Ben? Uh, me personally, yeah, I think I'm in between. Like. Uh, I think it's really important to be clear and concise with writing. My dad taught me that, but my dad's taken it far too far sometimes when he's been editing some of the work I've done. Um, so yeah, I think it's about a balance. Um, but yeah, I think the New York Times should know better. So I'd say I'm an eight. Nice. I'm disappointed. <laughs> Trig me tin, I'll torture you, my friend. Trig me timbers. Trig me timbers, yeah. Trig me timbers. Trig me timbers. One other thing I'd like quickly like to say is I think the um, the uh, the form and the context is important in terms of the actual product that's being written. So I've I've no problem with like a quick tweet having some inaccuracies, but I think a a newspaper article, especially one coming from the New York Times, mm. they have the time and the resources to do it properly, and I I think it's a problem when that starts slipping. But yeah. Anyway, that's just my my opinion. I don't mind that. I don't mind when Phil sends me Facebook DMs that have some typos. That's that's cool. that doesn't bother me. Yeah, I slide into your DMs. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, more trigger as well, just broadly that um, people spend more time, on, like less time on the substance and more time on the prettiness and stuff. Like businesses are all spending all their money on freaking branding and marketing and not on the actual product they make and whatever. All that shit just busy. Yeah. Well. That's a good good point. Yeah, very fair. Anyway, um, yeah, I got a little article for you. It goes a little something like this. <clears throat> Before I start, Hubert, what's the capital of Thailand? <laughs> <laughs> it's this is an article about Thailand that was relevant. Okay, so in Thailand, um, can I just explain the joke for anyone who didn't get it? <laughs> the capital of Thailand is Bangkok, and it was a um, juvenile uh, high school maneuver to ask your friend what the t- capital of Thailand was, and then bang them in their cock. Classic, yeah, classic, classic hijinks. Yes. It's a it's a high school thing. I haven't done it since I was fourteen, but I thought I'd bring it back up. You did actually just bang my cock really hard. <laughs> no, I didn't. 
I respect your your genitals. Uh, so in Thailand, this article is called Thailand to turn prisons into tourist attractions <laughs> amid COVID nineteen slump uh, on tourism. Um, so yeah, Thailand's massive with tourism. They got like eight million less visitors this year or whatever. It's like it's massive. They're losing heaps of money and now. They have a huge prison population for Southeast Asia, the biggest population, and massive women prison population as well. Um, I don't know how it covers uh, compares to the rest of the world, but for Southeast Asia, like it's mm. just huge. Um, so, yeah, only, only around a fifth. So I said eight million people, I think it was, but a fifth of last year's visitors are expected to return this year as tourists. So that's twenty percent of the tourists at the moment. That's mm. crazy. Uh, and so they have like massive prison populations. It's so expensive to run and uh, they don't really have any money. They don't have funding for it. So they have like actual food problems or alone like water problems and yeah. medicine problems. And like they're so overcrowded, like the prisons there are meant to be fucked. Um, and yeah, really sad. And so they're like, well, how are we going to fund this? <laughs> they're going to try and bring in tourism there. So um, there's a good approach. There's one approach like... One side of the argument is that it's a good idea because it gives them more skills and helps them integrate into society. Because, for example, they're going to set up like restaurants. So there's a, there's a, um, yeah, like a, in in Colombia, there's a women's jail that has a restaurant run by inmates. And in Singapore, they uh, the prison runs annual charitable events. Mm. Um, some defunct prisons have been converted to luxury hotels, uh, but that's like old prisons. So this is actually using the prisons with, with prisoners in it. It's kind of like a zoo. <laughs> Observe what they're up to. and um, mm. or, or get them to like run a restaurant, which is kind of obscene. Like make yeah. them work against their will. I guess that's kind of voluntary. And they, Sorry, they would get paid, but, you know, they'd be obliged to do it. That'd be their only job on offer. I don't know. Mm. Is it against their human rights to kind of make them become a zoo <laughs> member? <laughs> zoo mm. animal? <laughs> Whatever. What do you think? Oh, my first thought is who would want to go to one of those? Uh-huh. Like, why, what is the appeal of that? Like, to, to, it's good for kids in schools. You teach them what it'll be like if you don't study. Or what, I don't <laughs> know. People are going to go and know what it's like in a prison. I'd want to go. Have unless it was supporting something bad. Have either of you read uh, the book Marching Powder about no. the Colombian prison, the very famous Colombian prison? So that was the first thing that came to my mind when I heard you read this article, Phil. Um, so the idea behind that well, it's a true story. It's about this uh, British guy who gets caught trying to smuggle club, uh, drugs, a bit of cocaine out of Colombia. He'd been successful for years and, you know, just didn't bribe the right people to get out. And he got locked away in uh, maximum security prison in Colombia. Um, but then the prison was so corrupt that they allowed tourists to actually come in, experience life in the prison and even stay a night. And uh, one journalist decided that he actually really wanted to get to know this British guy. So he stayed more than a night and he kind of just ended up kind of living in the prison and uh, trying to support the British guy and trying to get him out. And uh, yeah, they made a lot of money just through doing tours and yeah, so selling food and you know. But who's they? Where does the money go? If it goes to prisoners to address the overcrowding and like give them more yeah. rooms and more food... That's great, but like, is the government just going to pocket it and put it elsewhere in the government that is losing money all across the board? Because yeah, of I mean, it was corrupt from the get-go, but uh, I guess a little bit of trickle-down economics was occurring in that it was going to the prison guards and then the prison guards were maybe, you know, updating the, you know, 
resources for them. They were buying new furniture and then they would sell stuff. The prisoners would actually sell stuff to the uh, tourists. So there was a bit of money, but it was all black market. So, mm. yeah. What about in, in this case, in your article, Phil, um, you said the prisoners are running a restaurant that tourists can eat at. <laughs> Do, are those people being paid for their work? I mm. assume so. Like most prison work gets paid, but it's, it's tiny. It's like mm. cents. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I, my, my first reaction was actually that like... Um, like there are, like it's, I think it's very common to have kind of tourism in prisons. Um, like, you know, Alcatraz is probably the most famous. Uh, yeah, but there's no prisons there. So that's right, them. that's right. But it's more from like a, a heritage and historical angle. And, you know, the same, same exists in Australia with Port Arthur and Fremantle uh, Jail in, in Western Australia. Um, I've been to Tasmania twice and the whole place just seems like a jail to me. It's, it's, it's scary. <laughs> Mate, you're from Australia. Australia was a jail yeah. uh, for, for British convicts. That was, that, was how we, um, that was how the white folk over here um, first started. But um, yeah, but, no, so, but I, yeah, I think I agree with you. I think like having, having it open for tours while there are actual prisoners in there serving their time does effectively just make it this weird voyeuristic experience that is pretty much just like a zoo and mm. i think that's very yeah obviously very humiliating and dehumanizing for yes, the prisoners um which uh, yeah I, I think it goes above and beyond their deserved punishment maybe um but mm. yeah yeah i mean it, you didn't quite go into that whether the article mentions if it's opt-in or not if they were being forced to like i don't think any anyone should be forced to you know do work for no money in a prison but if they choose that they want to on the possibility of making some cash and building some skills so that when they get out they can you know start a restaurant in the uh, the real world then i think that's a positive outcome i think the main thing is for it if it's a meritocracy then definitely um but you know if they're not benefiting from it in any way then yeah, yeah it sounds like slavery to me <laughs> yeah what kind of choices do these people have uh, you know, if they're barely getting fed and they're overcrowded, like they're kind of forced mm. to take these jobs even if they don't want to. Even if they, they hate the sight of doing dishes for a restaurant, but mm. that's the only job they've got access to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that against their human rights or whatever to put up with this humiliation? Mm. Well, I guess like what, what happens in a normal prison? Like I, I wonder, are the are prisoners forced to do to do cooking and cleaning and things like that or is that I'm assuming in Australia that would be an opt-in thing um, but yeah I, I think it's probably yeah I think it's un it would be unfair like I agree with Ben it would be unfair to force people to do that against their will um, uh, but I don't know yeah at the same time it's like it's very hard to like be too sympathetic depending on the actually no I'm not going to go there I think that's it, it, it's still it's still depending uh, on the crime it's yeah it's mm. it's it, it's a cruel unusual punishment above and beyond their, their jail sentence so yeah I don't, I don't agree with it yeah and I, I think one of the issues um, well massive issue with a lot of the South East Asian prisons is they're highly populated with just uh, low level drug offences um, oh yeah so do these people deserve to be in there in the first place? I guess that's the the massive moral argument from my opinion, knowing how, how well we have it in the West. If Chappelle Corby was still there, I'm assuming that would be very popular with Australian tourists, but mm -hmm. um, I think she's home back back safe on Australian soil now. But uh, but yeah, no, I think yeah, that's a great point as well about like just the um, 
and that's that's the case in many countries i think just the excessive incarceration the obsession with incarceration and mm. incarcerating criminals that haven't actually that aren't, aren't kind of a you know threat to society um which is a problem in itself but um yeah i also like I, yeah i don't i still I'm, I'm struggling to think of like who who would be the target audience and i, I cringe to think of like yeah kind of a overweight american tourists kind of you know mm. prancing in there with their camera like taking photos uh for the you know this weird tourist experience um, yeah instagrammers love everything <laughs> that will get them attention mate did you hear about the uh well, youtubers back then um who would go to like the suicide forest in japan and they're all yeah. like oh, this is hectic i could find someone here and is that shock tourism like, is that yeah shock tourism and it's like yeah. super frowned upon now but for a few years there like people people were doing that stuff and mm. it could be a similar thing on a prison and being like oh look they have to eat rotten rice and stuff like that you know they fucking do I mean, it wouldn't be a very nice experience yeah but uh i don't know gotta make money gotta attract the tourists and if it, as long as like all the money goes to the prisons i think that's good yeah mm. and and tying this back to the story in colombia marching powder I mean, the only reason that this British inmate was able to get out and appeal his case was because, you know, someone took pity on him and decided to, I think he was a, like a part-time lawyer and he heard his story and they bonded over doing some lines together and he Wait, decided... In prison? In prison, yeah, because the prison had full access to cocaine and everything. But how the prisoners really afford Really good story. It? Sorry? But how do the prisoners afford it? It's Colombia. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Is it really prison? <laughs> it, from the from the book, it didn't. Well, I mean, there was a lot of violence, and there wasn't much, uh, you know, authority. But it was. It sounded like its own, just you know, world of crime within the prison. There wasn't any regulation. So that reminds me of that hectic um, Mel Gibson movie where he goes to like a Mexican prison or something. Uh, oh, El Gringo or something? Is that it? Yeah, and the, the prison's like run by prisoners yeah. it's so bizarre and they like have markets and yeah, yeah it's weird it doesn't make sense to me different concept mm. whereas here like it's uh people would be shocked about our prisons here like that you know tennis courts and lots of leisure activities and stuff. yeah anyway, yeah i remember it was a huge controversy at the time when it was discovered that ivan malat had a television in his cell <laughs> yeah. um and it caused yeah huge public outcry uh yeah. and i believe it was then removed uh from from poor ivan uh yeah thoughts and prayers Interesting. Right, what's your ratings today, fellas? On the trick to scale, give me a your best out of ten. Mm. What do you reckon, Ben? Um, for me, I mean, I've yeah, having read Marching Powder, I think yeah, I can see both sides. I can see the positives for this, so it doesn't really trigger me that much. Um, yeah. My point is, yeah, as long as people, it's opt in and they're not mm. forced like slaves to you know dance like monkeys for fat American tourists, you know. <laughs> um, but if 80% opt in and 20% don't, those 20% they are going to be humiliated dealing with yeah. tourists look at them. True. Yeah. So I think I'd give it a 6.9 on the Trigger uh, sale for me. 6.9 for 20. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm quite triggered. I think um, the... Yeah, I, I agree with both of you guys. Like, as... Uh, like it would be better if the profits of this scheme were going to the actual prisoners. I suspect that's very, very unlikely um, mm. in this case. And, uh, but yeah, the, yeah, I just, it just doesn't, 
like it triggers me that people would want that there would be would be a demand for this that people would. I, want to go see it. <laughs> I just don't think it's a good idea. But I want to go see it. Look, I would go to this prison in Colombia after reading that book. It sounded amazing. Like, yeah. and my sister and her at the time boyfriend did, and they said it was incredible. One of the most unique things they ever did. Okay, well, maybe maybe I'm just I'm I'm I'm, I'm just ignorant here, but yeah, I guess yeah, like you know if if the um if the prisoners actually kind of like enjoyed being tour guides almost in a way or like you know they enjoyed the interaction with people from the public and stuff like that that could be great um but uh but yeah the, I, I feel sorry for the for the yeah possibly the minority that that just um find it humiliating and mm. and you know depressing being effectively a caged zoo animal um so yeah for that for that reason i'm solid solid 7.5 very nice thank you sir appreciate that Righto. Well, thanks for joining us today, Benjamin. It's been good. Oh, thanks you... for having me on, fellas. It's been a lot of fun. Um, hmm. As I said, when I first got the call to write the jingle for you guys, I was over the moon. And uh, it's great to be, finally be a part of an episode. Thanks. It's episode 22. So That's right. The naysayers said that we were never going to make it. But... <laughs> Here we are, episode 20. Let's hope for many more. Yeah, but yeah, no, thanks, thanks so much, Ben. It's been, it's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Great to share some ideas with you yeah. all. Oh, and the last thing I was going to say is, um, so for the many fans of the podcast that are huge fans of the theme and your beautiful voice, where can they, where can they find some more, some more oh, Ben? Great work there with the, uh, the, the tag. Uh, so you can check out my music on Instagram or Facebook. My Instagram is becoming.music and face, uh, Facebook is becoming. Um, otherwise, I don't have anything on Spotify yet, but there will be very soon, hopefully. Stay tuned. Nice. Stay tuned. Excellent. Well, well, would you like me to play you out with a song? Yes, go for it. Trigger me one, trigger me two, trigger me three, would like to do. Trigger me four, trigger me five. Trigger me I've you, my friend. Trigger me timbers. Trigger me timbers, yeah. Trigger me timbers. Trigger me timbers. Yo. Beautiful. Oh, that's so good. Thanks so much, man. Trigger me tin. I'll torture you, my friend. Trigger me timbers. Trigger me timbers, yeah. Trigger me timbers.